Hi, this is Dan. And Tom. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Today, we're going to take a quick look at the spy who came in from the cold and real world spy. This movie won Best British Film and was nominated for the Best Film from Any Source in the 1967 BAFTA Film Awards. All right. This is a good one. And it's a strange one. I don't think it's strange. I just think it's a very good telling of this story. It's a great telling of the story. Of course, in the middle of the Cold War, the spy was brought in from the cold. Or was he? Okay. As, <laughs> as, this is based on, a, a, of course, a book by John LeCarré. And we're going to get some kind of a more real-world view of what spying might be like, as opposed to James Bondish stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you mean just because there were no Aston Martins, no tuxedos, no, no glamorous yeah. venues, nothing that could make you smile or feel relaxed much at all. You're right. Yeah. You, you think it's not very Bond-like. <laughs> it's not very Bond-like. This is one of the classics, of course, and it is dark. Probably like I said, a bit more realistic in terms of a spy's life, like you said, anything Bond does. And reality-wise, the impact it has on the people you know and your families and so on. There was a reason M said, hey, we should recruit orphans and, you know, <laughs> people don't have families because, man, if you have any connections with anybody, this film being a spy, is not a great recruiting tool for spies, this film. <laughs> okay. Anyway, there were a couple of scenes when the spy, Alec Lemus, is with Nancy Perry, played by Claire Bloom, where maybe you can take a little bit of breath and chill out a bit. But it is dark, dark, dark. There's not much time to chill in this movie and not any light moments in this film. This is tough. Everything in it, it the cinematography obviously is superb. Oswald Morris was a cinematographer here. He drags you into the film with the bleakness of the shots. They're crisp, clean shots, but dark and dingy and ominous. Yeah, now I agree with you on the cinematography here because Oswald Morris won a BAFTA Film Award for this movie. Yeah. And it was the third year in a row he won Best British Cinematography for Black and White. Yeah. He also had three more BAFTA nominations later and won the Academy Fellowship Award in 1997. Mm -hmm. From the Academy Awards, he won Best Cinematography for Filler on the Roof, Oliver and the Wiz. Yeah. And he was the director of photography for The Man with the Golden Gun, The Man Who Never Was, which was about Operation Mincemeat, and many others. This dude is good. Yeah, yeah he is good. <laughs> I tell you, the, the shots, the angles, the camera light, the lighting, everything in, in this movie is fantastic. But man, dark, 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 dark. I'm going to say that again. And it's, and it's black and white. And yeah. one thing about this was, if you remember when we did our episode on the 1962 B movie, The Traitors. Yes. I criticized that one for being filmed in black and white. I didn't think it needed it. Mm -hmm. I didn't really yes. think it made sense there. But here in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, I think that black and white adds this grittiness to the movie. I mean, it was oh, it a does. really good choice to do this in black and white. And I agree. Yeah, this is 1965, so obviously they could have done it in color, right? I mean, The Wizard of Oz in 1939 was done in color. But well, you know, they they I, obviously I they obviously spent some money on this movie because we didn't even mention it. Lemus is played by Richard Burton. 
yeah, Richard Burton, yeah, <laughs> who so is just couldn't have become cheap. Just fabulous in this movie plays the main character, Alec Lemus, and is just terrific. I have to add also the music, which was composed oh, yeah. by Sal Kaplan. I mean, from the very beginning, it's foreboding, it's depressing, but it, it works. It's 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 what the movie needs, and it develops what the movie is all about and adds to that dimension of the movie because it's really a film noir movie, even if it's not rated as such. Absolutely. Wow. And this this music, what it's great about is it really enhances the sense of doom from the beginning of the movie that never goes away. And I mean, it starts with just this soft little piano thing playing, not yeah. a big, big production, but a soft little thing giving us a tune that's kind of foreboding sounding. And somebody probably knows what the tune is. I don't. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it really is. a man. And like you said, this is about the spy who came in from the cult is about as far from a Bond movie as you can get. I mean, <laughs> this makes Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy look like Peter Pan or something. I mean, <laughs> this is a tough one. So anyway, this spy, Alec Lemus, says at one point to Nancy Perry, who is played by Claire Bloom, who was terrific in this movie also. What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell balancing right against wrong? Yesterday I would have killed Munt because I thought him evil and an enemy, but not today. Today he's evil and my friend. Okay, Bond. James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Okay, that pretty much sums up this entire movie. And the level of deceit in this movie is terrific. So that sums up the lives of real spies, I think, what he just said. And we know Le Carré knows a lot about real-world spying because he worked for both MI5 and MI6. So here... It sums up everything in the real spy world, it seems. Like Renee Mathis tells Bond in Quantum of Solace. But I guess when one's young, it seems very easy to distinguish between right and wrong. But as one gets older, it becomes more difficult. The villains and the heroes get all mixed up. Yeah, the villains and the heroes get all mixed up. And I'll tell you, in this movie, Mathis is correct. The villains and the heroes <laughs> get all mixed up. You really have to pay attention. <laughs> you got to pay attention and you really wonder who's setting up who. And you are never sure to the very last seconds of the movie. And some things become a little clearer, I think. Ah, now, Renee Mathis, who we just quoted from the Quantum of Solace, he's one of my all-time favorite Bond allies in any of the Bond movies. Giancarlo Giannini plays the role masterfully and to perfection. So, but I must admit, Bond is far more fun to watch. No, I, I don't this. agree with you on that. All right. Uh, because in, this is a movie where the plot requires you to stay engaged. Yeah. And I stayed engaged. And I thought it was actually more enjoyable to watch than like No Time to Die or Die Another Day. The plot makes sense. It moves quickly through it. There's no really lull scenes in it, no, no. but there's grittiness to it. And it's based on Jean Lacare's novel, as you said, but Paul Dane and Guy Trosberg were credited for the screenplay. 
Mm-hmm. So you know, with those three, you're going to get some great spy movie writing. I mean, okay. no, much better than almost anything Purvis and Wade have done with the Bond series. Yeah, okay, all right. I mean, I really liked how they had Lemus saying to Nan. I mean, he's laughing, and he says to her, "Oh, nah, don't tell me you're a, you're a bloody communist." <laughs> and she says, "Yes." So matter of factly. I mean, yeah. that, that just that dialogue there was just really good because it really sets us into the middle of the Cold War. Yes. And so it was it was really cool the way they did that. Another line from Lemus a little bit a little bit later is he, he's talking about communism and capitalism. He, he said it really basically doesn't matter. It's the innocence that gets slaughtered. And like, oh, man. And, and that's that's really the tone of this movie. Because you're not sure which side is doing the right thing ever in this movie. And who's the good guy? Who's not undercutting the other? Well, and the thing, too, is it's since it's the innocents that get slaughtered, nobody's innocent. But so this really shows Lemus has this view on life, and he's consistent with it throughout the movie, except for the last 15 seconds or so. Yeah, I, I didn't get I mean, his his character was so consistent in that last 15 seconds might be 20 seconds, whatever it is. Yeah, I didn't see that what he did there squaring with what he did in the rest of the movie, especially when he had these conversations with Nan. Yeah, and he was so convinced of it, of course, and that's the way he lived. So, I mean, he, they, they obviously, in the beginning of the movie, they, wanted, they call him in. They say, hey, we want to give you a desk job. But uh, before we give you a desk job, we got one more. We want you to stay in the cold for a little bit longer. And so the last thing he wanted was a desk job and so on. So the whole thing is, is set up, and we are set up to believe one thing. And then other things happen in this movie and portray a different uh, scenario for us, I think. Yeah. Then, well, then you, you, then you think you might expect. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And another thing that I really liked in the writing of this thing was how they portrayed authority throughout the movie. You know who has the power in almost every situation until you don't. Right? <laughs> until you don't. <laughs> but Lemus's boss is called Control, so obviously he's the guy on top. But all through the movie, we see less powerful people talking and interacting with more powerful people. And these interactions get really cool. There's a guy named Carlton who kicks his subordinate Ash out of a club. Peters, who's Carlton's boss, at one point tells Carlton to leave and take the car. He wasn't wanted for the rest of the conversation. A character named Fiedler makes Peters get up from his chair to hand Fiedler the transcript from an interrogation. I mean, this was total power play. It wasn't needed. Yes. And and, 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 and it confuses us. To me, it didn't confuse me because to me, it said, okay, we're seeing the chain of command play out in front of us. We're seeing who has the power or who thinks they have the power. Well, that's what I mean. In all of these interactions. The power is dynamic and changing. Yeah. (laughs) The acting, though, was pretty, pretty damn good by everybody, I think, in this thing, right? (laughs) I mean, there isn't a weak character in this movie. So the casting was fantastic. And the acting and directing, fantastic. Richard Burton has the lead. And he was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role Academy Award for his portrayal here of Alec Lemus. Yeah. It was his fourth Oscar nomination 
And he had three more after this one. So you've got a really talented actor here. Now this part needed a strong actor and Burton certainly delivers here. Yeah. In fact, for me, it's hard to imagine many other actors in this role. There are some I could see there, but Burton really nails this thing. Speaking about Richard Burton, in an interview, Le Carré said that Burton was not happy with the way his lines were written by the screenplay writers, and he insisted they be written by Le Carré himself. So Le Carré had to fly to London to rework Burton's lines. And he said sometimes he just shortened the lines a little bit or tweaked them a little bit, and then all was fine. <laughs> okay, back to Richard Burton's acting. If you look at what he does, it's not only what he says and the delivery of his lines, but his face, his eyes, his body language, everything is consistent with the dialogue. And I mean, it's just flawlessly consistent. And that's, I think, what adds again to the depth of his character and the believability of his character. Fabulous. Yeah. Now, the lady who plays Nan is an actress named Claire Bloom, who really had an extensive stage presence. In fact, she was in a play, The Ladies Not for Burning, in London's West End. And who was in the play with her? <laughs> None other than <laughs> Richard Burton. They also starred in Alexander the Great in 1956. So they've worked together, and the chemistry shows. Yes. Especially since this is such a dark movie, and the chemistry between them is not an instant love thing that happens. So it's kind of cool to see the way that relationship shapes out. Yeah, they developed this relationship, and it's it's a it's a love relationship in the end, and uh, to the, literally to the very end, and it it is interesting to see how they develop it, and it's slowly they develop it slowly, which is like real life. It's not instant. It's it's uh, I I like the way they slowly develop their relationship, and it plays out to the end. So those two are two of the big leads. Yes, and then there were Sam Wanamaker, George Voskovich. Rupert Davies, Cyril Cusack, Peter Van Eck, and many more. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about them in a few minutes, but just the thing to get here is it was a really strong cast. Yeah, we even had Bernard Lee. And it even had Bernard <laughs> Lee. And it also has Oscar Werner playing Fiedler. Yeah. Now, Werner is one of those guys that every time I see him, I think of one of my favorite villains in the TV series, Columbo, when he played character Harold Van Wyck in the episode called Playback. I'm a huge okay. Columbo fan. And, you know, when I went back and saw this movie again, it was like, oh, wow, that was Don Wick in playback. So it was, it was cool to see. Yeah, he was great. Again, believable. You, you never for a second doubted his character, that you believed he is who he was portraying as Fiedler there. And again, flawlessly. When we talk about flawless, so we talked about the sound we really liked. We talked about the cinematography, the acting. This movie was also Oscar nominated for best art direction, set direction for a black and white movie. Yeah, so, it should I mean, have been. This, this thing really, really was good. Yeah. Now, before we get to the summary of this movie, when, I, when I'm watching a movie like this, I really like to see how they're placing it in time. Mm -hmm. And this was filmed in the 60s, and you can tell that, not just by the cars, but Lemus is buying cigarettes at a vending machine. Yeah. Now, I don't know about the rest of the world, but here in the U.S., you can't do that anymore. Right. Um, there's an office equipment store selling calculators and typewriters. <laughs> we don't have those anymore. And right. then there's this grocery store where Bernard Lee works. 
Yeah. And it's definitely not the way we do grocery stores here in the U.S. Yeah. Again, I don't know internationally if it's still done that way, but it definitely felt and really felt of the time when they made that movie. Yeah, I, I love the scenes with Bernard Lee, too, because it was, it was again, a natural setting, and you see the tension in uh, Alec Lemus's personality, especially in the one scene where he hits Bernard Lee. Yeah. That was a serious moment. But, uh, yeah, again, terrific stuff. And Bernard Lee playing a grocer. It's so anti-Bond. Now, I mean, remember, this is right, you know, what, they had three Bond movies out at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but it was nice to see him play a, he was definitely not M. <laughs> no. We'll just give you a quick summary of the movie. We're not going to go uh, scene by scene through this movie and so on. But Alec Lemus is called in by control, and it is clear that he does not want to be brought in from the cold yet. And control says that they have this one more assignment for him. That is a little different than any normal assignment. Lemus ran all the British spies in Germany out of West Berlin. Now, because of the loss of an operative and probably his age, it looks like Control maybe wants to sunset Lemus. And Lemus says he doesn't want a desk job. So this new assignment has him leaving and, you know, he gets this other kind of a, a cover job, I think, yep. at, a, at a library, right? And he's going to be assigned to this new mission, which is going to be unusual. <laughs> well, now, one of the things, too, as you're watching this movie, if you haven't seen it before, listen to every word between Lemus and Control throughout this movie. Because if you really pay attention to the conversations those two have, it's a little easier to deal with the twists that happen in the movie. Because it, it is kind of spelled out, but it's really easy to miss it. Yeah, it it is, and I and I think him in the beginning, I thought he was he's an alcoholic as part of his cover. <laughs> I think he may have been an alcoholic in real, it, for real, because <laughs> well, he definitely there isn't the moment. part of his cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so we we mentioned Bernard Lee as a grocer, and he strong arms him and so on, and and he gets he gets thrown in jail for that for a little bit. He's involved. No, wait a with second, though. Wait a second, though. That was part of the plan. Right. right. He had to create a ruckus. Right. To get tossed in jail. This so, is part of his new mission, right? Because yep. they want some publicity for this and they want him to appear as though he is out of control. Get it? Oh, I get it, Dan. <laughs> out of control. He just met with control. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So he's involved with this Nancy Perry who worked at the library. She meets him as he exits the prison. And then this guy follows him to the park. And it turns out this guy is a, an operative for East Berlin spy organization is, and is the first line in recruiting Lemus to sell his secrets to the East because they think, hey, this might be a fallen British agent who might get turned. After a series of meetings with higher-ups and all, Lemus is brought to the Netherlands, then to East Germany to be interrogated by Fiedler, who we mentioned earlier, who's a very tough guy. But the cool thing about this is you say that they think that they can turn him. Yeah. And part of that is because he's taken this job as in the library. It's like he's left the service. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that, that kind of helps. So it well, appears as though he, he is trying to do something outside of the service now. And then, yeah, bam. All right. So then there's a character who's really key. And you don't see him initially, but his name comes up a lot. And it's Munt. 
Yes. And he's a really high up guy in the Eastern Bloc spy ring. So it appears that Lemus is going to set this guy up, that he's going to frame Munt to be the bad guy and also a double agent working for the British so that he can be disposed of by the East because he's supposed to be working for the East and Lemus is going to try to set him up to make it look like he's a British spy as well. It gets complicated. (laughs) You think? (laughs) There's this hearing towards the end of the movie, and it's a tribunal that pits Fiedler against his superior Munt to see who is the internal bad guy from the East. And they put Lamus up as a witness to testify and to tell his story. And he denies that he ever met George Smiley and all this other stuff. They then drag in Nancy Perry, unbeknownst to Lemus, as a witness. And she thought as part of the Communist Party in London that she was going to on an exchange program. She's forced to tell the truth and that her flat was being paid for by the British Secret Service and that Alex's friend, George Smiley, may have arranged it. So Lamus is caught up in the middle of all this and caught now in a lie in front of this tribunal, which is the Communist Party Tribunal. And he well, the said interesting, he, the, the, the interesting thing to me for that is, and Control told him, hey, back off of her, right? Stop yeah. stop seeing Nan. And do, do you need anything? And he said no. And then all of a sudden, Smiley shows up to her place. So I thought that was weird because it was like going against this thing or were they talking in code? And so they've got yeah, well, to I mean, Smiley did ask. I didn't did, understand that. And he finally did that. Did she need any money? And he said, no, he'll take care of it when he got back, that he was going to take care because he was going to get, you know, he's yeah. going to get some money or somewhere, right, for, for doing all this stuff. So, yeah, so the plot thickens here. <laughs> and now it looks like this Fiedler guy is looking like he was trying to set up Month as the fall guy. And so Month is exonerated here. And Fiedler is incarcerated, probably later to be shot. Wait a second, wait a second. So they were trying to set up Munt, but they were really setting up Fiedler. Fiel- oh, man. <laughs> yeah, no, this is how it went, right? I yeah. mean, Fiedler was against Munt. Munt was against Fiedler. We don't know exactly who Munt is. We think he's a double agent. We don't know exactly what's happening with Munt. Uh, Fiedler, we kind of know his angle. and But they arrest Fiedler at the uh, tribunal, and he's probably going to be shot later. Lemus is locked up again in... in <laughs> eventually he's sleeping there he's he's beat too and you hear the door latch and it's unlatching or you hear something and he wakes up and he op- looks and the door he pushes the door and it opens or he pulls the door and it opens and he 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 gets out so he finds Munt and Nan outside and Munt has arranged a car and a guy to meet them at the wall and the setup for them getting over the wall when they see the searchlight stop and the fence is marked. Barbed wire fence is cut and marked with a handkerchief. And the wall is scalable to at a point so they can both get over the wall and to freedom in the West. Now, here's where it got confusing. And I, 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 I thought it was Munt and this guy who drove them there, who um, when they're climbing over the wall, there's some stuff that happens, right? She's climbing over the wall and he's climbing over the wall. He's, he goes up first. She goes up behind him. He's reaching down to grab her. And then some things happen there. And I thought the driver who Munt sent with them is the culprit here who, 
I'm not going to say what happens here. So you think close. it was a setup? I think it was a setup. I think. Oh, see, I totally disagree with you. Why? Well, for, first, Alex got over the wall. Right? The he was on top reason, of the wall. Yeah, he, he was over, right? I mean, because he was, and they were given very explicit instructions of do not look back, keep going. If you slip or whatever, keep going. And she stops and looks back. And then, Why do you think she was looking back? I don't know the answer to that. I, I then, don't know either, but but it it doesn't matter because they were told not to. And that yeah, yeah, but you, you think, you think they're going to take action just because she took looked back and yes, instead they of were trying to get her over the wall? To. Yes, they were told not to. They were told just go and get the heck out of here. Who do you think did the culprating? <laughs> the guards. I the spotlight came a, back on her. I got to go back and look at that again. Yeah, it's to me to me that ending and th- this is the whole thing where I say that last few, you know, 20 to 15 to 20 seconds <laughs> confuse me in the writing. And maybe it's because of this conversation we're having here. We both just watched this movie before we recorded this again. Yeah, so yeah. We 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 had kind of talked about what we were going to do and then we watched it and we sat down to do this recording and we both have a difference of opinion as to what happened at the end. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go and, back and look at it again because the 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 person, the culprit at the end, I thought was Munt's guy. Yeah, I I, I don't think so. I okay. think it was I think it was just one of the guards. But all right, well, well. In, anyway, in any, if you <laughs> in any case, yeah. that ending's confusing because <laughs> the ending you is two confusing. guys here who just watched the movie. Alec Lemus is a bit out of character. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. A- absolutely. I agree. <laughs> and it, but, but the cool thing is. That we've got a movie here that we both just watched, and we have a difference of opinion on how it even ended. We told you <laughs> it gets confusing. Yeah. Now, if you want to want to see what a real spy might look like instead of James Bond, you know, focus on Richard Burton's face as he plays Alec Lemus. This says it all. That is the tension and aggravation that permeates the life of a spy. And what he said in the beginning of when we played his clip here about the spies and in and, and, and Mathis's clip, hey, the good guys and the bad guys get all mixed up. Man, this movie says all of that in 1965. All right. Absolutely. So this is where we're going to leave. We're not going to tell you exactly what happens at the end. You can watch the clips on YouTube. And, and you so can on. see which way you think it went. <laughs> yeah, you, you can. And then tell us what you think. But when we watched this, it was available on Pluto free as of this recording. Although you gotta you gotta see lots of commercials on Pluto, or you could pay for view on Prime. Also, you could rent it and so on. But and we're watching. It's available. It, and you're talking about right at the end of of October 2023 in the U.S. Yeah. So there are connections here, though, that we like to point out in the movie, and we always like to look for connections to other spy movies and so on. Funeral in Berlin certainly comes to mind with Michael Caine playing the spy Harry Palmer. It is also dark, but looks like a carnival next to the spy who came in from the cult. <laughs> I have to say that. But it's that. a very good spy movie. Yeah. We have Bernard Lee. As we mentioned, he played him in the first 11 Ian Productions James Bond movies from 1962 to 79. So he was here in this movie in 1965 as that grocer. Okay. Okay. Now, besides him... Yeah. There are some other actors who appear in James Bond movies that have uncredited roles here. 
So Jeffrey Keene, who was the Minister of Defense, Frederick Gray in five Bond movies, Walter Gottel played Morzini in uh, From Russia with Love, and General Gogol in five Bond movies. Mm-hmm. David Brower played Mr. Slumber in Diamond yeah. Forever, and he was also an American diplomat in You Only Live Twice. Yep. Terry York played a Scottish strongman in Casino Royale 1967 version. And Stephen Plytus played a Greek tycoon in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. There's a that bunch pretty cool. of Bond people in this thing. <laughs> yeah, man, that's pretty cool. And there are no gadgets in this film, and very few shots are fired, unlike about any Bond movie, Bourne movie, or even Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> if we look back at the first spy movie, The 39 Steps, what's considered the first in 1935 again, there are very few shots fired yeah. as well. Yeah, so I'm going to disagree with you on this, and I don't know if you want to get into this, but I don't like us calling this the very first spy movie. Well, a lot of people do call it the first spy movie, well, but there, but, is, there is a movie before it. Well, there, before it's not, it. There, there's a movie before it, right? You have Sylvia of the Secret Service, The Man Who Knew Too Much, yeah. I Was a Spy, The Lady of Lebanon, yeah, Stone, Matahari, Dishonored, <laughs> Second Bureau, Madam Spy, The Secret <laughs> Game, The Invisible Front, British Agent, after tonight, Secret Service, Spies at Work on okay, the Secret Service, The Dark Road, Souls in a Prawn, The Spy, The W Plan, and The House of Dora Green. All were spy movies before The 39 Steps. Just off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> Just off the top of my head. <laughs> All right. I will say it was one of the first big ones. Yeah, it was one of the first big ones, certainly. All right. Rather, in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the focus here is on field operatives. And it is clear that they are very good at observing, gathering intelligence, and knowing what is going on on both sides. And that is what espionage really was, which is, you know, a couple of the early Bond movies, like From Russia With Love, is fantastic because that's more espionage-y than gadgets and stuff like that. Well, so that's this one type of is, I really like this movie. Yeah, because this it's type all of intelligence. The, it's all about the spy game. Yeah, it's the spy game. And this type of intelligence gathering is less stressed in the modern spy movies, for sure. And it's the center point in this film, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Now, Tinker Tailor Soldier spies another one of these gritty spy movies that they say is fairly accurate from the spy's life. Yeah. But I think that the spy who came in from the cold blows that movie away. Uh, yeah. I love watching The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And seriously, I have a very hard time not falling asleep with Tinker. Tinker's a long movie and really uh, lots more twists and turns than this one. But this has the same feel. It has the same feel to it in the terms of the darkness of it and the the true life, really, of a spy, what we would think. And when we talked to Andrew Bustamante, who was an ex-CIA spy... Uh, he was kind of saying the same thing, that the tri- life of a real spy is nothing like the stuff you see in the movies, James Bond, Mission Impossible, and so on. It's this espionage stuff. It's this blending in stuff. It's all that kind of stuff that you see here. And, well, that's wow. partly the difference between Le Carre and Ian Fleming. Yeah. Because Le Carre wrote Tinker. He wrote this. I mean, yes. his spy movies tend to be more realistic spy feel. Yeah, and like we said, if you look at Lemus's face, Richard Burton as he's playing Lemus, virtually every every time he talks, in every scene, you look at his face, you see the tension, the frustration, the pain in his face. It really makes you think that spying is nothing in real life like it is in 
the movies that we currently see in the Bond franchise, Mission Impossible, and so on, and all the modern spy movies. It really is not like that. It's dark and lonely, a lot more like Fleming wrote the character of James Bond, a blunt instrument of the government, and not written to be a likable character. And that's what he said about Bond. And really, you could see from the portrayal by Burton that, wow, that would be a rough, rough life. Yep, absolutely. Now, we talked a little bit about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and you told me something kind of that I didn't know about either, about that title of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Why don't you go ahead and fill us in, especially for us Americans who don't really have a really good, strong British background. I didn't know that the title, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, was based on a British counting game, much like in the USA, we have used Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo. And was often used for selecting who might be it in a game played by children. So it may have gone like Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Sailor, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief, etc. So there you go. It may be like Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo. So I didn't know that. So yeah, I didn't know go. that either. That was interesting when you told me that. Yeah. So as a spy movie fan, you must see or see again the spy who came in from the cold. It gives you a very sober dose of reality on what the spy world might really be like. For me, I would rename this the spy who was left out in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll agree with you on this. You must see again, because yeah. it had been a while since I'd seen this movie, and I'd like this movie. And re-watching it to do this episode, uh, it was really good. Yeah. The Cold War was cold. It was brutal. As the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, fought, scraped, spied, and did everything they could to get the better of the other. From spies on the ground to spy planes, this was a tremendously tense time in history. And again, this is 1965 that this movie was made. As the backdrop to some of the spy movies in the 1950s and 60s was real spy stuff that was in the news. Double agent spies selling out their governments for money to the sworn enemy. You know, yeah. unfortunately, we thought the Cold War was over. But if we look at what's going around in the world today, yeah. I think it's back. <laughs> It's and it might not be so cold. Like we said, there were double agents selling out their governments and stuff for money. In the late 1940s and into the 1950s, there was a real group that they thought were five British inside guys, later called the Cambridge Five, who sold out England to the KGB. The five guys in real life were purported to be Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, Anthony Blunt, John Karen Cross, and Kim Philby. Of course, we've all heard of Kim well, Philby. We've talked about Kim Remus. Philby in multiple, yeah. uh, you know, his character, if you will, appears in multiple movies. Yeah, and there, there's an acronym for spies who sell out as to why they do it. And the word is mice. The four reasons spies sell out. It stands for money, ideology, coercion or compromise, and ego. Virtually, it is always one of those reasons. We mentioned Kim Philby. Why don't you give us a little background on him? Kim Philby, his real name was Harold Adrian Russell Philby. He was a high-ranking officer in the British intelligence and seemingly totally dedicated to England and the cause and beyond suspicion. After, he met a Soviet agent and became a spy for them. He was the liaison between British and American intelligence services, too. He is the one who got a lot of attention. And there are many documentaries on Kim Philby you could see on YouTube and everywhere that we highly recommend as a real backdrop of what happened in the real spy world, there is one that is 100% about him called the spy who went into the cold because 
Philby eventually left his official position after Burgess and McLean defected to the Soviet Union, bringing suspicion to Philby. But he was exonerated in 1955. Wow, that is how much above suspicion he was, resuming his <laughs> career in journalism <laughs> while in Beirut. He got on a ship that was headed to the Soviet Union and defected. So it was like, okay, that was a mistake. He was a very, <laughs> very talented double agent. Yeah. <laughs> triple, triple agent, was a, I guess. He was a spy for the Soviets for 30 years. So the 1985 movie, The Fourth Man, is about one of the Cambridge Five blunt. And a movie, Another Country, is somewhat based on Guy Burgess's double agent life. In the 1960s, this real-life stuff impacts spy novels written and screenplays written, of course, for movies. Definitely. Look up Kim Philby. It's a fascinating story with real-life consequences of selling out his country. You think, how can anyone really do this? But it happens in real life and in the real spy world. We've had many spy movies about double agents, of course, from The Living Daylights to Atomic Blonde. But it really happens. Yeah, that, that's one of those that the writers didn't just come up with the idea of, huh, what if we have somebody be a double agent? They're basing it on reality. Now, we should do another podcast on some of the real-life spy stuff that went on in World War II and Operation Bodyguard. Because uh, yeah. as, we, as we know, real-life events do influence spy movies and what goes into them. Yeah. So we, we did two podcast episodes on this a long time ago called Spy Movies in the Real World Connections Part 1 and 2. Yeah. Kind of delve into this concept. But maybe we have to go back because it's been a while and we've seen more movies with this. And readdress that concept. Yeah, I think that's a good idea because it's fascinating stuff. Real world stuff does influence the movies, especially spy movies. Go see The Spy Who Came In From The Cold on Pluto or anywhere else. It might be streaming. It's worth a look or relook, and definitely a serious spy movie. And the, the Criterion Collection has a DVD on it. So if you want to see it on that medium, you can see it there as well. All right, that's a wrap. This has been Dan. And Tom of SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Do us a favor, subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you spending time with us. <laughs>